Well, good morning, everyone. Darren Saul here, your host of Playing With Perspective, the Suspended Animation Podcast. It's episode 163, and I'm joined here by the fantastic author, Dina Davis. Hello, Dina. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Now, for everyone out there, we're going to be chatting today about Dina's new book, A Dangerous Daughter a work of fiction drawing on true events from the author's life. All right, Dina, I'm looking forward to hearing much more about this story. But before we do, I thought I'd give everybody a little bit of an introduction into who Dina is. So Dina Davis is an Australian author who lives in the Top End Northern Territory and the Eastern Seaboard, New South Wales. Her debut novel, Capriccio, was shortlisted for Northern Territory Chief Minister's Fiction Award in 2020. In 2019, Dina co-authored and edited a non-fiction guide for writers, Sharing Writing Skills, by Ranwick Writers Group, published by Ginandera Press. Dina's short stories, articles and poems have appeared in the literary journal Borderlands and several anthologies. She has twice been shortlisted for the Northern Territory Literacy Awards. A Dangerous Daughter was published by Salento in 2021, and that's what we're here to chat about today. So, Dina, welcome again to the show. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be here and to have a chance to talk about my writing. Love it. So, obviously, I'd like to learn a bit more about A Dangerous Daughter, but before we do, Dina, what would be great is to tell us a bit more about your story. I'd love to learn more about you and your journey as a writer. When did it all start? Well, it actually started when I was only eight. So practically all my life, I've either wanted to be a writer or I've been writing. But it was only in the last, say, 20 years that I was able to take writing seriously uh, because, you know, for the rest of that time, I was um, a, a working single mother for about 20 years and that meant that I had to put my writing on the back burner. So it was only after I retired from full-time work that I took on writing. But when I was eight years old, I stood up in class when everyone was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Everybody <laughs> said, a fireman, a policeman, um, a nurse, or, uh, you know, uh, some one of those very um, usual jobs. I stood up and said, when I grow up, I want to be an authoress. Wow. And the whole class burst out laughing. But the worst thing was the teacher burst out laughing too. Oh, no. And I was so mortified, I decided never to tell anyone again that I wanted to be an author. Oh, no. so obviously, it was something that was burning from a yes. very young age. Yes, and has continued to do so. So I'm very, very grateful I've been given the the, the time to you know be able to write now in the last Lovely. few years oh, fantastic and now why did you write this book in the first place and why as a work of fiction rather than a memoir good question and very difficult to answer actually but the reason I wrote the book was partly as a catharsis for my own you know childhood trauma and partly because I thought it would reach out to other people who experienced similar experiences to my own and would help them, hopefully would help them. Uh, I decided to write this as fiction, 
because in order to write memoir, you've got to have a certain um, amount of recall and memory. Now, one of the stories in the book uh, talks about the fact that I was given electric shock treatment at the tender age of 14. Oh, and as a result, a lot of my memory has been erased. So I really couldn't write a memoir because I didn't have the material. I was therefore forced to invent quite a lot. But the interesting thing is that during the writing of this book, a lot of those uh, lost memories came back to the surface. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of, you know, digging for memories, inventing when I couldn't find them, using fictional techniques, which I believe are far more, um, you get deeper into the truth of a story using fiction because you can record a person's thoughts and their speech, which you may not be able to find in, um, you know, if you're doing non-fiction or factual writing. Yeah. You can you can make this story deeper and you can give it a bit more colour. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, someone, I've got a quote here about fiction, um, which someone said that fiction is the way of, a different way of telling the truth, like but it. it's still, it's still a form of the truth, you know. Oh, I love that, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so then this book, or how much of the story is true and how much did you, do you think you invented in a way? I'll put invent in adverted commas. Well, in a way, all of it's true and none of it's true. I could say both. Um, the A lot of the things that I've written about in that book actually happened to me, but I have changed the main character so that it isn't me. The main character is a young girl called Ivy Morgenstern. Mm -hmm. And she's very different to me. Well, first of all, she's got curly red hair, which I don't have. <laughs> and she's a much more assertive, um, maybe more sporty. I was always a, a bookworm and, and a bit of a nerdy child. Yeah. So she's a different character. Um, in real life, when I grew up, I, I had two sisters. But in my book, those two sisters have been conflated into one new character mm -hmm. who is neither of those sisters. So that's an example of how I actually use some of the truth to create a, a new truth, which is, which is how you do fiction. Love it. Love it. Well, what I'll do, I thought what would be good is let's open up that video again mm -hmm. and let's have a little um, commentary of, of that video as we continue through it. So yeah. we get a bit more idea a bit more insight into exactly your story and exactly more about the book. So I'm just going to put a few slides and then I'm going to stop it and I'll give you time to have a bit of a chat. Good idea. Let's go. Love it. can see from the slides um, a lot of the book deals with the main character's struggle with a disease which is now called anorexia nervosa but in those days it had no name um, and what happened was uh, with Ivy she just simply stopped eating because she heard a voice in her head saying you, you're not allowed to eat 
uh, she had no control over this and quite the opposite to what most people think where people think it's a choice yeah. oh I'm just going to be anorexic and be nice and slim it's actually something which happens in a person's mind and they have no control whatsoever over this um, absolute compulsion absolutely it's, a, it's an obsession it's a compulsion. so for instance in this slide there's another part of anorexia called um, body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. And body dysmorphia is where you are really quite skinny, but when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a fat person. And um, that's, that, that, is, that is actually true and it's happened to me. Uh, people don't always believe that. You know, they look at, they just see the, the, the person in front of them and yet you can't expect people to understand. But what I do want people to, to understand is that this is a genetic and psychological condition, which just like any other disease, like cancer, like heart disease, some people are born with. In fact, um, now that I've uh, been part of a study on anorexia that was done, an international a research study. It's been found that you can be born with it, and probably I was born with it. Wow. As, a, as an infant, um, I was told many times that I'd driven my mother into, into a nervous breakdown because I refused food um, for the first year of my life. So it is something that you cannot control and it's certainly not a life choice uh, that you see all the film stars and models and so on yeah. proclaiming proudly that, you know, they lost 50 kilos or whatever. Absolutely. It's and not it's, the same yeah. thing as anorexia. And I want people to understand that so there's more compassion and understanding towards this awful illness. Definitely. Let's continue on. Sure. So as you, as you can see, you know, it's very much a, a lens through which a person that has anorexia sees the world and has a certain relationship with food. Yeah, exactly. So um, there, it, it's almost like a phobia that food is, is the enemy, mm -hmm. and, um, but people will try to force the anorexic person to eat, obviously, because the, the end result of anorexia is death, and it is the most... Um, it has the highest death rate of any mental illness. So um, we do read about occasionally um, people dying, but they're well-known people. But a lot of people who aren't well-known die every day from this disease. And often they're blamed. They're, oh, you know, the, this person chose not to eat. They did not choose. It's the, the same as any other phobia or obsession. Yeah. Yeah, it, overpowering an overpowering yeah. compulsion to avoid food to restrict yeah. your food at yeah. all costs otherwise you know you you will well maybe the fear is that you know something worse than death will happen yeah. to you and so and it's and it's totally irrational i mean sometimes i'm totally, sure it's totally, totally irrational 
Exactly, exactly. And that's what I'm trying to get across. But in this book, I've written it as a story. Uh, uh, you know, this, this young woman has a lot of adventures. She's eventually sent away from her family who are so distraught at the, the, the behaviour of this naughty daughter who won't eat that they, they say for their own protection and in the faint chances that she might get better somewhere else, they send her right across the continent from the eastern seaboard of New South Wales to Western Australia. So you couldn't get much farther away from your family. The irony is that the, the correct treatment these days for this disease is family therapy. It's, it's all to do with the whole family being involved, the whole family fighting the disease together, wow. the whole family supporting the person who's suffering from the disease. Well, what happened to Ivy is that the exact opposite happened. She was rejected by her family because of the illness. Uh, when I say rejected, I mean that more or less literally that she was sent away. I'm sure her family still loved her, was still worried about her, mm -hmm. but they had no idea that the treatment involved all of them and that they had some responsibility too. So the fact that um, this young woman, uh, Ivy Morgenstern, in the book is struggling was, I've, I've interpreted that through a, a new character called The Voice. And The Voice is a real entity that is, is basically living in, in Ivy's head. Wow. But whenever she's starving, and she often is, uh, it, it, another thing that's not true is that People who are anorexia don't have any appetite because literally the Greek word anorexia, and without and rexia, without appetite, is wrong. An anorexic person has a raging appetite. They are starving and they would give anything for a morsel of food, but the voice is stronger than their natural hunger. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've written a lot about that the effect of that, the voice in her head. And we're saying much like what this picture shows. No, 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 that's food. You can't have food. You know. yeah, that's right. Crazy. Let's yeah. continue on. this would be a good place to stop because I can see a recurring theme in here, you know, particularly with, you know, some of the magazines that exactly. they seem to always put on a pedestal the fact that people are losing weight and they look fantastic and what's the yeah. new super diet, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe you want to comment on that. Well, of course, and this is, this is why I inserted this into the, uh, the, the, the little video because I'm appalled that this, in this day and age, 2021, magazines are so irresponsible. The media itself is so irresponsible that in spite of this lethal disease being really very rampant among, amongst young teenage girls and boys, it happens to both girls and boys, they put, these are front page covers. They're not just even articles, front page covers 
about how wonderful it is to say lose 38 kilos, which, you know, in some people's case would be half their body weight, um, so that they are slim and attractive and desirable. So, you know, I I think that, that this is criminal, that people are being encouraged to go on so-called diets, which sometimes lead people into anorexia. At other times, people who are verging on anorexia because they have that gene that I talked about, mm-hmm. will uh, it will just exacerbate the whole pressure inside them not to eat. And I think that the media, particularly women's magazines, really should be, they should be banned from um, publishing such stories a lot of them yeah more conscious more responsible definitely yeah. wow let's move on i thought i'd stop there obviously yeah. that's the uh the cover of your book that's the cover of my book, but the the picture just before that, I was trying to say to yeah, stop sure. let's, that. Let's but see if we can bring that back. That previous picture yeah, is a picture of that's actually me when I was fifteen years oh, old, my God. having recovered. That is when I was well enough to be photographed and put a dress on oh, for the first man. time. Um, I would have probably had by then put on a whole stone. Well, those days we talked about stones and not kilos. That's right. But um, my weight, uh, I think the lowest was 20-something kilos, you know, five-year-old children weigh. Um, And I was given two months to live. So, you know, it it was really a battle between the voice in my head and the other part of your psyche that wants you to live, you know. So I've got a chapter in the book called Eros, which is the force of life, versus Thanatos, which is the, the death force, you know. Wow. And, um, that leads me into a lot of um, discussion about the mind itself and psychoanalysis, which Ivy does, it, it does have treatment from a psychoanalyst and I go into that in, in some detail about how the psychoanalyst um, tries really hard to strengthen the life force yeah. in, in this young girl. Wow. Let's continue. Is this you? And as you can see, yes, I, I did recover. And that's me only a couple of years ago um, doing my, one of my yoga poses. Um, <laughs> I still I still do my yoga every day. Excellent. And that that's one of the things that uh, part of my life force, you know, oh. that, that have kept me going. But just the two photos back, I wanted to show you sure. the difference um, one back from there. That is when um, I had fully recovered. Wow. Three years after that photo was taken of the skeletal girl. 
Yeah. Um, by then. Difference. Yeah, big difference. And then the next slide of the curly-headed girl yep. was how I like to imagine my main character, Ivy, mm, um, who, as you can see, doesn't look anything like me, but uh, has an expression on her face which shows that, you know, she's she is suffering yeah. and um, there's a lot going on inside. Uh, on the outside, she just looks like a normal curly-headed girl, I suppose. Um, and I did want that picture for my book cover, but Salento, my publisher, uh, couldn't, they wouldn't give copyright for that oh. particular picture. Right. But I, that is how I think of my main character, Ivy Morgenstern. That's how she looks in my mind. But the, the, the girl on the cover also reflects a lot about her because basically she was very, she is, uh, because she exists in my mind. The interesting thing is, as an author, when I create a character, that person becomes quite real to me. Yes. Such as in my first book, which this one, Capriccio, my first novel, um, the main character is represented by the eyes on the front of this, the cover of the book. Yeah. And that main character, I recognise her birthday every year, although she's long passed away. It was also based on a real person and on a true story. Mm -hmm. So the characters in my books become part of my family, really. Um, and that's why, you know, I look for photos of them everywhere. Wow. Fantastic. Let's move on. Is you obviously holding up your book. Very, yes, very proud. I'm very proud, but more good and proud. I'm just so relieved that the whole process of the actual writing of the book is over um, yeah, yeah. because it was not really cathartic as I thought it might be. It was actually quite hellish, the whole thing of having to go back in my mind to those, those dark years sure. and relive in every chapter relive from my imagination and from what little memory I had left wow. um, of those events and transpose them into Ivy's life yeah. so it was really it was a labor of love but it was like um, you know uh, some people say oh it must be such a, a, a joyful experience Partly it is when you finish a chapter and you think, I really got it that time. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the time, it's really just hard, hard work, yeah. you know. And um, so that's why I look so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and let's chat, about, let's chat about that. How long did the process take? I would say at least five years. And, of course, things germinate for years and years and years, but maybe – Counting from when I first started to jot down a little note, a few little notes, and had the idea, um, I would say, uh, yeah, five years. And there were catalysts along the way that urged me on because, you know, I started to write and then I thought, no, no, nobody's going to be interested in this. So I put it aside. Or, oh, this is too hard for me. I'm not going to do this because I actually found that I was relapsing mm -hmm. during the writing of the book. Um, but I had a, a, a huge surprise um, and about three years ago. 
a psychoanalyst and a historian discovered a letter in her archives. And it turned out that letter was written about me back in the 50s no by the very psychoanalyst who I'm describing in the book as Dr. B. Oh. And she had written this letter and I've got, I've got a facsimile of it, actually. Okay. I can hold it up. You won't be able to read it, but wow, yeah. um, she sent me a facsimile and I can read a little bit of this sure. amazing letter um, from this. Uh, this psychoanalyst was writing to her supervising psychoanalyst and she obviously didn't know how to treat this girl, but she says, my anorexia patient whom I was glad to discuss with you several times, is terminating this month and returning to her family. From a weight of four stone three, which is 27 kilos, wow. when she first came two years ago, she now weighs 50 kilos and has developed a, a figure, shows signs of being mature and is now 18. She's quite transformed as far as her personality is concerned and has carried on normal schoolwork, hopes to have a university education and to develop a very good talent she has shown in writing. So and it, we put two and two together. She mentioned the town that the girl came from. She mentioned, she's not allowed to mention the girl's name, but it was very obviously me. Yeah. And so when this um, historian found out about that, she wanted to know a lot more. I wrote a few articles for her um, website and then I decided I will go on with this book because people are interested after all. And um, so that was, that's what kept me going, you know. Well, no, well, we're glad that you did because what an incredible finished product. Thank you. Yes. Yes, I'm happy with it. And uh, I hope everybody else will enjoy it too. Absolutely. I hope it won't be all doom and gloom. There are some, you might find parts where you'll smile or laugh, I hope. <laughs> and um, I've already had some lovely feedback from people who've read advanced copies or have read the manuscript. Um, oh, fantastic. It, it, it is apparently quite emotional and quite moving to other people, but um, it, it, it's a surprise too. There are surprises in this book. Oh, great. So I, I don't know um, whether I should read any. I don't really want to give spoilers because, you know, I'd love people to go out, find the book. Um, it should be, there should be copies in uh, some bookshops, selected bookshops. Beautiful. And it's also been put into an ebook so that they can, it can be read on your Kindle. Love it. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, anyway, let's continue on and then we'll, I've got some more questions. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. I love it. Great. Thank you for putting that wonderful video together as well. That's fantastic. So, Dina, what what do you want the readers to take away from this book? Oh, that's easy. I, I want people both who experience anorexia, who know somebody else who either has or currently is, to know that what the main thing that that person needs is compassion and understanding rather than uh, blame yeah, or judgment. Or, 
or judgment. Yeah. Um, and it's quite hard for people to understand when you see somebody refusing food that you think, what a foolish person and oh, what are you trying to prove? And, you know, it, it is only through love and compassion that uh, I believe healing is possible. In some ways, one never recovers from an illness that's so ingrained genetically, mm -hmm. um, but you can find ways to manage it. And in my case, I have done that, as you can see. I, I, I do yoga and I'm very careful with myself um, around anything that could trigger a relapse. Exactly. Um, but yes, I want to reach out to people to say, this is not a life choice. Please don't mock people. Please don't shame people. When you see someone in the street who looks like a skeleton, mm. don't stare at them or in horror. Be kind. Yep. Uh, be compassionate. And the other thing is I think we should be able to talk openly rather than hide it away as a dark, deep, dark secret. Yes. And uh, to be able to say, I see that you, you may be suffering. Um, are you okay? Can I help you? It must be so hard for you. Mostly people here, it must be so hard for your family, but very rarely it must be so hard for you, you know, because there's still this entrenched uh, feeling that it is the person's fault. That's right. So I think empathy is a very important empathy word here is the as well. Word. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Incredible. Um, and in terms of uh, your new book launch, I believe that your book launch is coming up very, very soon this week. Is that right? It certainly is. In two more days. Um, wow. Tell us more about that. A dangerous daughter will make her debut <laughs> uh, in in a couple of days uh, at the main bookshop where in the in the town I now live, Darwin, a wonderful city. Love it. Um, they have only one big independent bookshop here, which one is wonderfully supportive to local authors. So they're opening up the shop after work at five o'clock and everybody who lives in Darwin, please come. You're all invited. We're going to have champagne and wine and food and I'll do some a reading from the book. Um, and a wonderful local writer who's also a playwright, Sandra Thibodeau, will be launching the book. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very happy to sign copies for people. And um, when I um, get back to my other home, which is in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and I hope <laughs> by the time I get back to the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there'll be no more COVID <laughs> and no more masks. So if we're allowed to have live events, I'm organising a live event at the end of this year or perhaps early next year. Great. I'll also be able to sign books and give a talk oh, about great. the book. Now, what took you to the Northern Territory? Interestingly enough, um, my children, I have three children at one stage, all three of my children were living by chance in, in, the, in the top end of the nice. territory. Well, what do you know? Um, so I have two daughters and a son. And I have to say right now, I forgot to say this, people are saying, is this about your daughters? <laughs> and they see the title, A Dangerous Daughter. 
And I have to assure everybody, no, my daughters are very tamed. Thank you. Good, <laughs> They're good. no longer dangerous. Um, <laughs> and they never were. Uh, uh, but uh, no, it's not about them. Um, now tell me again, what was that question? Um, yeah, so how did you, how did you uh, move to the oh, how did I Territory? Okay, over the last 20, say 23 years, because I have a, a grandson who's already turned 21, mm -hmm. I was working full-time as a, a program manager and a teacher, uh, but in all my school holidays I would come straight to Darwin as each baby was born. Because as I say, my three children were living here and producing offspring. <laughs> and that's what brought me up here, family. Uh, and as soon as I was able to, I decided to settle here and I have my own place here, partly to be closer to my now growing tribe of, of grandchildren. I have eight now. Um, and my two daughters who live and work here and have lived and worked here for the last 20 years. So I've got strong family connections here, but also I just love it as as the as a place, as an environment, both socially, environmentally. It's a very very beautiful landscape. Um, those of you who who do see me on Facebook and Instagram, I'm always putting photos of the beautiful foliage, the the ocean, which is is stunning. It's very very different to the Pacific Ocean, which is a you know very wild, but strangely named Pacific, the wrong name altogether. The Arafura Sea is, is, is like a beautiful jewel. It's a beautiful blue-green colour um, and it, it sparkles in this gorgeous sunlight. And during these months between May and September, we have what's called the dry season, which corresponds with, with winter down south. But every day it's 30 degrees and every evening you can wind down in a beautiful cool and you know it goes down to 19 or 20 so it's it's like paradise for mm -hmm. those few months and of course it's a very difficult climate at other times of the year the humidity soars up to 90 degrees and people um do get distressed and hot but look as long as you've got air conditioning which of course i have <laughs> in big room you can survive. And I also find it's very good for my creativity mm -hmm. because it's a very relaxed lifestyle. Um, there's far less pressure. There's less busyness. It's a smaller population. You get to know everybody. People are very friendly, very kind. Um, so for me, both physically and mentally, for my physical and mental health, it's much better for me. And, of course, I'm in touch with my beautiful family. Um, uh, and so that's what brings me. Ask for more than that. Couldn't ask for more. Couldn't I'm very blessed. Well I'm done, very Yeah. Now, um, I believe you're, you mentioned, um, I think it's Harry Hartog. Um, yeah, where, yeah. Where people that's, can buy your book in the physical that's, form. A, that's right. That's another bookshop that's been very, very supportive to me. It has copies of my previous book uh, I showed you before, Capriccio, in, in, on its shelves. And very soon, hopefully, it will be Excellent. carrying a dangerous daughter. Um, I want to say something too about the title. Sure. Originally, I was calling this book a difficult daughter mm. because, you know, children who have this disease are often called, oh, they're so difficult. But I decided I didn't like that title because, again, it sounded like it was 
the you know the person's whole fault that you know when you say a child is difficult you mean behave yourself behave better so I, I changed the title against all my <laughs> against all advice a lot of people said oh no everybody will think it's one of those horror stories you know where there's a, a monster called a dangerous daughter <laughs> however what I wanted to point out is yes she is dangerous but more dangerous to herself than to anyone else. Definitely, and I think that's that's well reflected in the word or the change from difficult to dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I like it better anyway. Yeah. So, Excellent. Um, and um, now you can also get the book on Amazon. So I'm going to put a link up in the show notes yeah. for everybody to buy the book on Amazon if they need to. Yes, you can have a look at um, my my. I have an author page on Amazon too. So if you go further in your link and go to Dina Davis, it will show you a lot about both of my books and little articles I've written about them. But the book itself, yes, is, is um, now easily available, both as an ebook where you can read it on Kindle yep. and as a hard copy, which oh. I've shown you. It is a paperback, but um, uh, my other book I did in hardback and paperback, or Salento did it for me. But in this case, Salento was wonderful to me they chose me as their author um, for their author project, author of the year, mm. where they do all the work and the um, as an author, I contributed just my book, but I there was no other contribution that you sometimes make to hybrid. If people know about publishing, there are things called hybrid publishing now, yes, where the author and the publisher together. Um, do the book but this time Salento did it all on their own and I want to give a plug here to them because honestly um, Evan Shapiro who's the manager and CEO of Salento has been so patient with me rewrite after rewrite after rewrite <laughs> and he almost almost never lost his cool yeah, I, know, I know Evan he's fantastic <laughs> he's wonderful and his wonderful mother who's also his proofreader and editor she did a wonderful job too. Ended up, I did about five new five drafts. Wow, so that took like a further six months of work. But Incredible. hopefully now you've got a good product and it will be an easy read. I hope. Oh, <laughs> That's all I hope. And I also want people to take away pleasure and enjoyment and good memories, not just serious stuff about yeah. you know illness and recovery, but you know, there um, there's also a lot in the book about my my own um, background, which I come from an Orthodox Jewish family, and of course I rebelled against that. And uh, there is a lot of that rebellion reflected in the book, and a lot of comments about um, discrimination on religious and racial grounds, and how that how endemic that is in Australian society. Um, and I find that we haven't really moved on a lot in the last 50 years from that either. So that's another part of insight and understanding that I would like readers to take from the book, that you can't judge a person on their background or because they followed a certain religion. That is not the person. That's some overlay um, and then... In, right. in Ivy's case and in my case too, 
you are more than your background. So true. But, you know, it colors, it colors you, it colors your personality, it color, colors your life. And we have to always be on guard against racism and um, religious discrimination. Uh, in one chapter of the book, I talk about Ivy goes to school for the first time. She's the only Jewish child in the school. And there is a lot of anti-Semitism amongst the people in this country town mm -hmm. who know no better. And um, all racism stems from ignorance. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happens to her? I'm not going to tell you what happens. You'll read it, hopefully. Definitely. I think everybody should read the book <laughs> and find out. Yeah. So no more spoilers. Um, <laughs> well, Dina, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion about a fascinating topic and a very important message and i really want to um congratulate you on you know the uh, completion of this wonderful book thank you something that's obviously so important to you um you know it's a really important personal work so i'm going to make sure that i put all the show notes and all the links um, up for everybody so they can access everything they need to to find out more about you and about the book and uh, just wanted to wish you all the very best of success and I hope Thank that, you. Uh, it sells many, many, many copies. Thank you so much, Darren. It's been a great pleasure. Thank Lovely. you. So everybody out there, I hope you enjoyed that because I certainly did. And we'll see you very, very soon for another episode of Playing With Perspective. There it is now, A Dangerous Daughter. And everybody, check out the links for where you can get your copy. Thank you. Uh, Goodbye. Thanks everybody. again, Dina. Bye for now, everybody. Bye.